Warning! This week's escape pod includes strong themes of war and violence and isn't intended for children. Escape pod 136 December 13th, 2007 Today's story, Bright Red Star, by Bud Sparhawk. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. Once again, it's the month of December, so we have donations off while we focus on charity. I want to take a minute to talk about one of the charities I'm supporting this year. This is not a sponsorship. Nobody's paying me to say this. I just think it's pretty cool. When I think about Escape Pod's audience... I think there's only one thing I can reliably say we all have in common, and that's a passion for the written word. For literature, whether it's spoken or in print, whether you're hooked on science fiction only or your tastes are all over the map, I'll bet most of us discovered reading at a very early age. Anna and I have been reading to Alex every day since shortly after he was born, and it gets more fun all the time. I've got Goodnight Moon memorized cold. I also read to Anna in bed at night, and to the other people I care about. In a real sense, the core that started this podcast is that I like to read stories out loud. All I needed was an excuse. If you look at where you are in your life, and at your circle of friends, it's empirically pretty obvious. Literate people tend to have a lot of advantages. More creativity, better focus, and I would say more resources for having fun. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, But what matters is that we had this chance to discover reading, and a lot of people don't have that chance. There are kids in the developed world who have never seen a book, who've never been read to, who might never learn to read. And that's wrong. The largest children's literacy group in the U.S. is a nonprofit called Reading is Fundamental. I first heard about them when John Scalzi asked me to send the payment for his story to them back in 2005. Since then, I've done my own homework on them, Each year, they give out more than 16 million books and other literary resources to the kids who need it most. When I look at what they do, and when I think about the impact that reading has had on my life, I can't not support them. So I'm giving to them, and if you're looking for a worthwhile cause this Christmas time, you might think about it too. Their website is rif.org. Our story this week is a little darker than the intro. We present an unusual war story... Bright Red Star by Bud Sparhawk. Mr. Sparhawk lives in Annapolis, Maryland, which he considers the sailing capital of the known universe, and he's an Air Force veteran and a technical communication consultant for government and corporate clients. He has several dozen stories to his credit, spanning a 30-year career. This particular piece appeared in Asimov's in March 2005, and also in the year's best SF number 11. The story is read for us by Paul Herring, Paul's the managing editor of Escape Pod Classic. That's our site that presents the best family-appropriate stories from Escape Pod's archives. If you'd like to listen to these stories with your kids, you should definitely check it out at classic.escapepod.org. So move quickly, and don't stop for questions. It's story time. Bright Red Star by Bud Sparhawk Our boat floated silent as an owl's wings and settled softly as an autumn snowflake. There was no doubt that the enemy had spotted us. The stealth could only minimize signs of our presence. We'd done everything we could to reduce detectability. Hardened plastics, ceramics, charged ice, and hardly any metal. 
All that did was create doubt and, possibly, delay. Or so we hoped. We tumbled quickly from the boat as grounding automatically discharged the ship charge, without which the boat's ice frame would quickly melt. In a matter of minutes, the only remaining trace of our craft would be a puddle of impure water and the gossamer-thin spiderweb of the stealth shield, and that would disappear at the first hint of a breeze. We deployed in the pincer and arrowhead formation, sending two troops to the north to parallel our advance, two likewise to the south, and two to the point. Hunter and I followed in column. We moved quickly, carefully, ever wearing. That the Shardies would eventually find us was not in doubt. Neither was the certainty of our death when they did so. They did not use humans well. However, I doubted they'd find much use for us. Tactical estimates gave us an hour to save the recalcitrant settlers' souls. They were some sort of colony, religious or otherwise. It made no difference, only that they had foolishly chosen to remain where others had fled. There was a slight possibility we'd have less than an hour and an even smaller possibility of having more, so we moved quickly. I'd estimated 20 minutes to reach their position and 10 to 20 to ensure we'd located everyone. That left us 5 minutes for action and 10 as a margin for contingencies. I knew we'd fail if we used more than 55 minutes. Shards. One of the last observers managed to croak out before Joe too fell silent. That word was the only description of the aliens we'd ever heard, so it stuck. The Shardies had hit us hard when we first made contact with their kind, which could hardly be called contact at all, since they attacked first and without provocation. When our ships backed off, their ship followed, attacking again and again with unbelievable ferocity. When its missiles ran out, they tried to ram the thick plate of our exploratory ship. It smashed into tiny ceramic fragments on impact, leaving a cloud of glittering fragments that spun into emptiness, leaving no trace, no hint of what had so provoked them. After much debate over the wisdom of such an attempt, we again tried to contact them. The idea of another space-spanning civilization held too much promise to ignore. It took years before we found them, but find them we did. That is, we assume that someone found them. For a fleet of their ships suddenly appeared near Zhou Tu and attacked every sign of human presence, ships, orbiting stations, ground-based settlements, anything that wasn't of natural origin. The military tried to defend themselves while the civilian ships fled in every direction. This was a strategic mistake. Since they'd backtracked one of our ships to Zhou, that meant they could, and probably would, follow every ship who escaped. Every destination system was now at risk. Thanks to the brief warning, most of the settled systems managed to mobilize to meet the Shardy's attack. The initial losses were great. We had to fall back from system after system, engaged in a running battle with something we do not understand. We've tried to figure out why they attack with such ferocity, why there hasn't been an attempt at contact, and why they won't respond to our calls. We fail at every attempt to understand them. Neither have we deduced anything of their technology from the damaged ships we've managed to recover. Hulls, engines, and controls appear to be nothing but dirty glass. We suspect this is the analog of our silicon-based technology but can't be sure. Researchers have been working hard, I'm told, but I've yet to hear of anything useful come of it. Nor can we figure out what sort of creatures we're fighting. That one word, that one utterance from a lone observer on Zhou, was all we had to go on. What we do know for certain is that either the Shardies will be destroyed, or we will be. Humanity has lost too much, too many for compromise. It is clear that there can be no middle ground. The trip to the site of the single communications burst was uneventful. 
We didn't expect to encounter resistance. The Shardis don't settle on the planets they take from us. No, they just wipe them clean of humanity and then move on. We knew there had to be Shardy Gleaners surveying the planet, trying to find some fresh meat, or what was worse, breeding stock. With a little luck, we had a slight advantage by knowing the group's location. Without luck, we'd find that the Shardies had beaten us to them. The location was a hill close by a half-destroyed farming complex whose tower leaned precariously toward the north. With luck, we'd find whoever made the call nearby. First place to check were the buildings, or what remained of them. We went straight in. Better to find what sign we could quickly, time was running out. A sweep of the barn was negative, as were the remains of the silo and the outbuildings. The house was a different matter. We found some open jars, preserves mostly. The footprints we found outside were small, a child's perhaps, or a small woman. The tracks led up a hill and into the woods. I sent the outriders wide to cover while Hunter followed the tracks. Could be a trap, so I waited, senses alert for any indication of a problem. The crack of a twig brought me to my feet. It was Hunter and a little girl. Cave up there, with a head nod. Three dead men, three, four days gone. That tied with the time we'd received the burst. She was a tiny thing, about nine or ten, I'd say. Bright eyes and scraggly hair, good teeth. Looked scared as hell. I could understand that. Hunter wasn't being very gentle as he dumped her at my feet. What's your name? I stooped to bring my head to her level. You with them aliens? She asked, all wide-eyed. How come you talk like us? We're combat soldiers, I answered. We're humans, just like you, sweetheart. Now, come on, what's your name? Becky. She finally spit out. How come you're still here? Pa said everybody left. We came back to take care of you and the others, I answered truthfully. We can't afford to let you fall into enemy hands. Pa and the Paston boys thought you'd come, she said. How did they die? Becky seemed fascinated by my sidearm. They shot them after Pastons used the Mayday thing. I hid in the back where they couldn't find me. Are you going to punish them for doing that? That got my attention. Takes a real idiot to shoot the people who demonstrated good sense. I began to doubt that the Shardies would have gotten much use out of whatever mush these jerks used for brains. Right, sweetheart. We'll punish them. But first you have to tell us where they are. Did you bring a ship to take us away? Becky asked as she fingered the butt of my AC-43. That's why Paul grabbed Mayday, to get us a rescue ship. We came to make sure the enemy doesn't get you, I answered honestly. Listen, we don't have much time. Can you take us to where the others are hiding? I think they're still over at the Truett place, she said, pointing to the east. I nodded to Hunter, who was already directing the scouts eastward. I picked up Becky and moved out. Hunter covered my rear. Can you tell us how to get there? You mean to the Truett's place? Becky asked. Sure, there's a big field there. That where the rescue ship's gonna land? The Shardy ships we'd managed to capture more or less intact were completely empty. No aliens at all. Just glass of various colors and shapes. Either the ships were highly automated, or the Shardies had destroyed themselves completely so they would not fall into our hands. Suicidal, or so we thought. Eventually, we discovered some living creatures if you can call them that, aboard one of their ships. One of the things we'd learned was that if we had sufficient warning, we could defend ourselves fairly well. Sometimes we managed to drive them off, and sometimes not. Every battle was fought hard and long, usually with massive losses on both sides. Our defensive successes managed to achieve, at best, parity. 
That all changed at Witka, a heavily fortified military outpost armed with the latest data on Shardy attack patterns. Shardies were using new patterns that got through the outer defenses. It was as if they were anticipating the base's reactions and countering Witka's best defensive moves with ease. Witka fell with all hands lost. After Witka's defeat, we lost ground steadily, falling further and further back towards Earth year after year. We no longer had parity. We were losing. Then, largely through a stroke of luck, our fleet happened upon a lone shardy ship near Outreach. As soon as it realized we were near, it attacked on an evasion pattern that defied the fleet's best defensive efforts. The fleet lost six ships before managing to still whatever mysterious force propelled the shardy vessel. The marines lost no time in boarding. Command had high hopes of finally finding something alive inside. They weren't disappointed. Disgusted and surprised might better describe their reaction. Inside, they found 16 of the Zhou survivors. Survivors isn't exactly the word. What they found were 16 bodies with art arms, legs, and most organs. What remained were essentially heads hooked up to life support and fueled by oxygenated glucose pumps. There were a couple hundred strands of glass fiber running from the ship's walls into each skull, into each brain, into each soul. Four of the 16 were still functioning. Alive is not a word to describe their condition. Clinical examination of the four revealed that each was fully conscious and aware. At least that's what the EEG traces indicated. It also indicated that the Shardis had used no painkillers to dull the senses when they'd done this. Had the survivors' mouths, they would have been continually screaming. All four died mercifully fast when their pumps ran dry. I'm not too sure that the medics didn't help that along. It was a mercy. The only conclusion we could draw was that the Shardis were using human brains to defeat human defenses. They were obviously using our own brains to think like us. There was no hesitation on the part of command. They ordered everyone except combat types like us from the most likely targets. Humanity couldn't allow any more people to become components for the Shardy offense. But civilians never listen. Farmers were the worst hanging on to their little plots and crops until somebody dragged them away, kicking and screaming at the injustice of it all. That's why we were here. Forty settlers had stupidly refused to be evacuated from New Mars. Forty we didn't know about until we got that one brief burst. My mission was to make certain they didn't become forty armless, legless, gutless, screamless weapon components. Why do you act so funny? Becky asked as we jogged along. Her question was expected. Few civilians ever see combat troops like us. Luckily, the combat gear and darkness hid most of the worst modifications I'd had to undergo. Cybernetic heart-lung pump with reserve oxygen so I could operate in any atmosphere or even underwater. Augmented muscles on legs and arms that bulked me up like a cartoon giant on steroids. Amped vision that ran from the near-infrared up to the UV range. I could even switch to black and white for better night vision and smart metal skeleton structures to provide a good base for my massive muscles. Flesh had been stripped from anything exposed and replaced with impervious plas. My hands were electromechanical marvels capable of ripping weapons-grade plating off a spaceship and sensitive enough to lift a tiny girl without harm. Then there was my glucose pump, a nasty but useful technology we'd copied from the Shardies. Even my brain had been altered substituting silicon and gel for the massive pink jelly I was born with. Definitely not something you'd want your daughter to date. I'm glad it was dark. In daylight, I'd probably scare the bejesus out of her. 
We're modified so we can fight the bastards, I growled. Revenge for relatives on Widco was my overt reason. Curiosity about the Shardies and getting a piece of them was secondary. I saw no sense in going into the gory details or the agonizing processes involved with a little girl who wouldn't understand. Tell me about the rest of your group. Are they all right? Mr. Roberts is still the boss. He's the one that shot Pa, I think. And there's Jake and Sally and little Billy. Billy's my friend. Jake's got a bad leg. Then there's all the Thomas women. They have a big wagon. Or they did before the men came and burned it. She started crying. I was certain she was talking about the roaming gangs. Lots of people didn't want to leave anything the Shardies might be able to use. Senseless that. Shardies could care less, but most civilians wouldn't know that. Best destroy what you left behind, they probably thought, and had taken their anger out on things they could reach. Mr. Roberts said we didn't have to worry because we weren't soldiers. He said we'd have the whole world to ourselves. But after everyone left, Pa got really afraid of what might happen. Roberts must be the leader of this group. Roberts was wrong, Becky. You all should have left, I said. Didn't they tell you that it wouldn't matter if you were a soldier or not? Being a human is all that matters. Mr. Roberts got real mad when Pa argued with him and said he wanted to use the Mayday thing. Then Pa and the boys made me run away with it. You gotta go along this stream for a bit now, she directed. That explained the burst message that told us there were people left behind. They must have used one of the emergency broadcast units the evacuation team had scattered across New Mars in the last days, just in case. What happened to them? I asked as I followed her pointing finger down the stream. The scouts picked up my changed direction and reacted. They told Pa to come into the cave to talk. Becky continued, chatting away. Pa told me to hide. Then I heard them arguing and shouting and I got really afraid. Then there were some shots. I heard the men looking around. Mr. Roberts was cussing a lot, calling me all sorts of names, but I stayed right where I was. I was scared. What did you do then? I stepped around a huge boulder and wondered if it would be easier and faster to wade in the stream instead of through the woods on either side. Hunter was close by my side now in this narrow section. After it got quiet, I snuck out and found Pa and the boys laying on the ground. Pa was bleeding bad. I tried to stop it, but it wouldn't stop. Then he went to sleep and didn't move for a long time. I got hungry waiting for the rescue ship Pa said would come. That explained the jelly and jam jars, just what a little girl would like to eat. Are you going to bury Pa and the boys? Burial wastes time, something we can't afford, Hunter said sharply. Down, he signaled as a shot ricocheted off my chest armor. I dropped immediately, instinctively tucking Becky underneath to protect her. Hunter slipped to the side and disappeared. I switched to infrared and made out fuzzy heat forms in the brush a dozen meters ahead. The muzzle of a rifle was glowing heat, right from the shot he had taken. None of the forms moved. I waited, silent. Becky groaned and wiggled feebly. Her voice was muffled. Wait, I whispered, waiting for Hunter to get into position. Ladder up, a man's voice barked from behind me. Move easy now, I got you covered. I pushed up, allowing Becky to crawl out before I came to my feet. The man took a step back. <laughs> You sure are a big one. He peered closer. Ugly, too. He's come to rescue us, Mr. Roberts. Becky said. He's got another soldier with him. Becky's voice sounded strained. I glanced at her and saw the blood. Damn, had his shot hit her? I noticed the heat signatures of two more men in the brush, one behind Roberts and another somewhat further back. I had no doubt all were armed and all too ready to shoot. That made six in all. You shot Becky, 
I said calmly. She needs help. To hell with her, Robert said nastily. Her damn family's been nothing but trouble. Kill one of my boys, they did. Let the little bitch bleed. They're going to take us away in a ship, Becky said in a rush. That's why we're going to your place. The field's a place they can land. Roberts didn't answer her directly. That true soldier? You got a ship? I really didn't like this man. Nobody, nothing could find a trace of the boat we came in. Becky's the one who'd said there'd be a rescue ship. Ain't no damn ship taking me or my people off our land. Robert spat, ignoring what I had said. We're going to hold on to this place come whatever. This'll be a damn nice place for me and mine after the war moves on. Did he really believe that? The Shardies are going to comb this planet and glean whatever human stock they can find. Do you know what they do to the people they capture? Robert sneered. I seen the news about what they did to them poor troopers. But we're civilians, not some combat-trained space jockey. They won't bother us. We don't know military stuff. I couldn't believe Robert's ignorance. The aliens don't care what you know. It's the human thought process, the way our minds form associations, our ability to recognize patterns. That's what they use. They don't give a damn if the brain comes from a soldier, a navigator, or even some dumbass farmer. As soon as the angry words popped out of my mouth, I regretted them. Well, I might be a dumbass farmer, soldier boy, Roberts drawled, but it's you who's at the wrong end of this here gun. Not exactly, I said as I watched Hunter silently taking out two of forms behind Roberts. That action told me the other three had already been neutralized. Hunter is good at what he does. Thorough. You really shouldn't have said that about Becky, I said calmly. Roberts' normal human reaction time was no match for my enhanced speed. As I quickly swiped the knife edge of my forearm sleeve across his throat, a wet, red grin grew beneath his chin. Severing the carotid arteries releases the pressure and drains blood from the brain. It causes death in seconds, and slashing his larynx prevented any outcry. Robert stood quietly, erect for a moment, until his body got the message that blood was no longer flowing to the head and no more signals were coming from the dying brain. Then he toppled over. I scooped up Beck and continued. Hunter would destroy Robert's head, just as he had the others, and catch up. I hoped the rest of Robert's flock wouldn't waste more of what little time we had left. While I jogged along, I checked to see where Becky had been hit. It wasn't fatal, so I put a compress over the wound to staunch the bleeding. It would do well enough until we found the others. Where now? I asked. Becky stopped sobbing for a moment. There's a pond down there. It's up the hill from here. There's a hiding hole near the barn. So that's how they managed to evade the evacuation search teams, by hiding in a bunker. Hunter had caught up by then and I briefed him. He directed the scouts to converge on the spot. What if it's sealed? He asked. You know what to do. I answered and he smiled. That was the difference between us. He enjoyed this, enjoyed the danger, enjoyed the blood. When we got within sight of the entrance to the bunker, I put Becky down. You have to call them out, I said. Can you do that? They'll shoot me like they did Pa, Becky protested. I hurt real bad, mister. Can't you do something? She was crying. Listen, Becky, it's really important that I get to those people quickly. I tell you what, if they shoot at you, I'll punish them like I did Mr. Roberts, all right? She nodded, but reluctantly. Becky, just walk over there and yell. Tell them you're hurt and need help. I don't think they'll shoot a little girl. Aren't you coming with me? I shook my head. No, they might be afraid if they saw me. 
You can tell them who we are if you want, and then I'll show myself. I wiped her nose and pushed her behind to get her moving. Becky hesitated, then slowly hobbled across the field. Help! Help! I've been shot! She screamed. A black hole appeared in the ground by the barn, and a man climbed out. Becky? He called. Robert said you were dead. I noticed he'd left the hatch open. Good. He just shot me like he did Pa in the Pastons, she answered. We heard a shot, but didn't know it was you. The man said as he approached and knelt before Becky. Damn, that looks bad. How did you manage to get here? And where are Roberts and his men? The rescue soldiers took care of him, Becky answered innocently. Soldiers? That didn't sound like a curse, more like a man with hope in his voice. I stepped forward. Captain Savage, 45th Combat Arm, I said. We came to save your souls. I could see by his frightened reaction that he wasn't going to be a problem. He's got a ship to take us all away, Mr. Truett, just like Pa said, Becky said. They'll have a doctor to fix me up and we'll all be safe. Truett stepped closer. I heard things. I could hear the fear in his voice. How much he knew, I did not know. We can't be used by the Shardies, I said calmly. Can't survive more than a few minutes without our combat rations. I figured he knew about the measured doses of anticoagulants fed into my bloodstream. When those stopped, my brain would suffuse with thick blood, hemorrhaging and destroying the remaining organic brain cells. We're running out of time here. How long? He said, showing more understanding than I expected from a dumbass farmer who hadn't the good sense to save himself and his family when he could. I've only got about another hundred minutes, I answered. Truett turned his head. Suicide trooper. He blinked, but that didn't stop a tear from running down his cheek. He understood. Without another word, he led the way toward the black hole. They're all inside, he remarked quietly. There's thirty of us, mostly women. Some are just kids. He added sadly. I was hoping. He stopped, looked at Becky, and sighed. <sighs> Never mind. Thirty in the bunker. That meant all forty were accounted for, counting the three men of Becky's family, the six Hunter had taken out, Becky and Truett. Good. We'll take care of them quickly, I said, and he nodded. Quiet. Yeah, I guess he did know. Things. Hunter and the scouts had already converged on the hole and were dropping through one after another. I had no doubts of their effectiveness. What's it like for you? Truett said. He was holding Becky tightly in his arms. Being here or being a soldier? Both. I can't see how you could be so cold and distant. Hell, man, can't you at least show some emotion? Or are you mostly machine now? His voice was a mixture of anger and fear. I grew up on a farm. I said slowly, trying to dredge up memories of a happier past on a planet now lost beyond redemption. I still remember the smell of autumn, the feeling of mud between my toes, and how it felt to kill my prized sheep when it was time. This mission's no different. I do what I have to do because there are worse things for a human being than dying. I saw the news tapes, he said. Ugly, horrible. But what about your own hide? Don't you have any sense of self-preservation? When you've been taken care of, we'll go after the Shardies, I bit out. Our secondary mission is to gather whatever data we can and squirt a message to the fleet. After that, well, there's four, five thousand tons of explosive force in our packs. I padded the small canister strapped to my back. I figure a dead man switch will take care of them if we get close. Truett smiled. Brave, but it was a foolish waste of resources to come back for us. We made our own mess. Stupid as it was to believe Roberts 
and we deserve to lie in it. I checked the time. We only had 15 minutes of good time left. Hunter was taking far too long. I'm sorry, I said quickly. You don't have any time left. Truett grabbed my hand and squeezed. I just want you to know. He began and then choked off whatever he was going to say. Instead, he slapped my shoulder. Yeah. I could tell he was trying hard not to cry, but his voice cracked at the end. Well, he said to Becky, looks like we've got a ship to catch, he said cheerily. Hunter popped out of the hole and came towards me at a run. We're done, he said quickly. Moments later, the ground surged upwards with a roar as smoke and flame shot from the burrow's entrance. If that didn't get the Shardy's attention, nothing would. Becky, I said, and gently took her from Truett's arms. It's time to go. Is the ship coming? Becky asked excitedly as she squirmed around in my arms. I don't see it. It's up there, in the sky, Truett said very gently. Just look up, there, to the right of that big, bright, red star. Becky tilted her head back to look almost directly overhead. I brought my forearm across her throat and held her as she died. I hoped she didn't have enough time to realize what I had done, what I had had to do. Hunter had taken care of Truett without a struggle. He too had been looking up, as if he might have believed his own words. I gently lay Becky's lifeless body on the ground, trying not to feel. As before, I let Hunter take care of the final details, ensuring not a single brain cell remained in either head. There were two minutes left in our window when I heard a distant whine. It could only be the Shardies. I placed my finger on the detonator. Our comp packages were running and would catch our final moments. Civilians just don't understand, do they? Hunter asked as he waited beside me for sweet oblivion, sweet release from these mechanical contrivances we'd become. I thought of Truett and the way he had bravely shielded Becky to the last, thought of all the ways the war hasn't changed human decency, thought of my prized sheep and the necessities life forces on us. Some do, I admitted. And that was our story. Once again, we'll wrap it up without any funny comments. I want to give a quick shout-out here to another of my favorite podcasts, Starship Sofa. I've mentioned them before. Tony and Kieran are two British hardcore fans who talk about the classic authors of science fiction. And they do it in depth. They don't just talk about the stories, they go into the lives of the authors and the worlds around them. And they do it with humor and fun. They've lately gotten permission to podcast a number of stories from Michael Moorcock. I'd say I was a little jealous, but then they asked me to narrate one of them. So if you go to starshipsofa.com, you can hear me read Moorcock's Lost Sorceress of the Silent Citadel, one of the most fun stories I've gotten to read in a long time. So check them out. So, four weeks ago, we ran another action-oriented piece, Christine Catherine Rush's Sparks in a Cold War. Once again, this one got a very positive response. Only two real complaints. Martin R. said, This one just made me sleepy. Faceless people struggling pointlessly. And Listener gave it a highly punctuated, preachiest escape pod ever. But most people found it a solid, thought-provoking action piece. The morality of the main character, Briar, fascinated a lot of folks. More than one person said they kept thinking of Captain Mao from Firefly. And the choice to make the hunters women drew some discussion as well. The quote of the week has to come from Be Doomed. 
Extreme Safari Trip, 8,000 credits. High-powered laser rifle, 700 credits. Enough explosive power to level multiple villages, 2,000 credits. Refusing to be a pawn in a political terrorism conspiracy? Priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's escape pod. Thanks, Be Doomed. Of course, you don't need to buy escape pod because it's released on a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license. So you can share it freely, just don't sell it or change it. All other rights are reserved by our authors. If you want to buy Escape Pod, you're welcome to buy our collectible archive CDs or DVDs from poddisc.com. They make great Christmas gifts if you order fast. And if you like what you hear here, please tell a friend or blog about us. This month's donations are disabled, and we encourage you to give to the charity of your choice. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. Find them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from Mahatma Gandhi, who said, Morality is contraband in war. We'll see you next week with the first of two Christmas episodes. Until then, have fun.